Are you ready to gear up and start the mission? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Episode 10 already. My, how the time is flying. So today I'm going to continue reading from A War of Deception, my debut novel, which came out in 2017, and its mini-sequel, A Face in the Crowd. So I'm going to pick up in A War of Deception at a rather typical or almost, maybe a trope is a better word for it, of a spy drama, a clandestine meeting in Moscow's Gorky Park in the middle of winter. Up to this point, Mai has survived the attempted kidnapping of her in New York City. She's brought Alexei up to speed, and they go to interrogate the men at the Brighton Beach apartment where Mai was to be taken, and they learn a couple of things there. They learn that these two men are connected to a Russian mafia don back in Moscow, who has some sort of mysterious control over the president of Russia, Dmitry Kargan. They also discover a file folder in the apartment that contains a photograph of Alexei's granddaughter, Natalia, who is a student at Harvard University. This, of course, is a tremendous shock to them because they've done everything they can to protect her since she came into their lives to be raised when she was nine years old. So Maya arranges some additional security for Natalia, and then she and Alexei head off to Moscow to try and track down why a mafia don was interested in Alexei's granddaughter and in Mai. So here we are, Gorky Park, in the middle of winter. Chapter 17, Cold Drama, Moscow, Russian Federation. Moscow's nighttime temperatures had dived double digits below freezing. Daytime brought highs of 0 degrees to 5 degrees centigrade and an almost perpetual gray overcast. The leafless trees in Gorky Park were skeletons against the dreary sky. Snowflakes from a constant flurry swirled, kept from touching down by a breeze brisk enough to cut through layers of clothing. Every winter, the city of Moscow flooded Gorky Park to make a huge outdoor skating rink. Today, at the start of the work week and with the biting wind, it was deserted. Mai thought the absence of others made them too obvious. Alexei assured her such meetings were commonplace here. Thanks to their Gore-Tex-lined coats and gloves, fur yushankas, and their ballistic vests, They didn't feel the wind except on the exposed skin of their faces. Alexei seemed impervious, his cheeks bearing a slight stain of red 
the only color in the monochrome landscape. His blue eyes had dull to match the clouds as he stood with Mai on a shoveled walkway at one of the park's highest points. His profile was etched against the grim backdrop, his stance rigid. If not for his frosted breath and his constantly moving eyes, he could have been one of the park's famous statues. Mai brought her gloved hands up to her mouth and exhaled into them in a futile attempt to warm her face. Did he pick Gorky Park to be dramatic, or does he hope we'll freeze to death? she asked. Alexei's smile appeared and disappeared. Kurgan does have a flair for the dramatic. And the Kremlin has heat. Well, the Kremlin is official and requires protocol. An unofficial clandestine meeting in Gorky Park does not. He must miss being a spy as much as we do. I don't miss it. Right, we're standing here, freezing our asses off, waiting to meet the President of Russia in secret, and you don't miss it. His eyes flicked to her backside before he resumed looking for Cargan. Your ass is right where I left it last night. I have two approaching. I see them. He'll want to speak to me alone. Like hell. Now, let's not let him think you're disrespectful. Disrespect a man who shot you? Never. Cargan wore a black greatcoat and a gray yushanka, which emphasized his broad forehead. Even from a distance, Mai saw the ever-serious expression with the pouting lower lip. The man at Cargan's side was as tall as Alexei. Cargan wasn't much taller than the five-foot-six-inch Mai, the bodyguard wore a Soviet-style fur hat with a red star and a black army sheepskin overcoat. The guard was young, late twenties, also serious-faced and pleasing to the eye. When Cargan and his guard stood facing them, Mai and the guard assessed each other. She wasn't going to take his youth as lack of experience unless he took her gender for granted. Not all Russians were as enlightened as Alexei. Cargan's mouth tried to form a smile. He and Alexei shook hands before the inevitable bear hug and exchange of kisses. Alexei Nikolaevich, Cargan greeted. Dmitri Dmitrievich. Cargan looked at Mai and gave her a head bob. Gosposa Bukharina. Their exchanges in front of the bodyguard, at least, were going to be conventional. Gospodin president, she replied. Mai and Alexei looked at the guard. Yuri Borov, of my presidential protection detail, Cargan said. Because he was the only one with Cargan, Mai realized he was one Cargan trusted. Cargan gave his uncertain smile again and looked at Alexei. Come, we will speak alone. Cargan cupped Alexei's elbow, and they walked on the shoveled path. Yuri and Mai followed, at a distance where the discussions would be private. Well, Alexei would relate every word to her afterward. She doubted Cargan's bodyguard had the same access. How long have you been Cargan's bodyguard? Mai asked, 
knowing Russians like small talk. Six months. Conversation is distraction. Well, I can multitask. He gave her a smile. Then, so can I. I thought so. Your Russian is very good. She nodded toward Alexei. I had a good teacher. I'm Maya. I am Yuri. You are Bukharin's wife? The Gosposa, the equivalent of Mrs., should have given it away. Yes, she said. Are you married, Yuri? Not yet. He looked at her again with another smile. A light in his eyes she read with ease. You have sister? No, sorry, she said. Too bad. My smile to acknowledge the compliment and strain to hear what Alexei and Cargan talked about. Both men shoved their gloved hands in their coat pockets and hunched against the intensifying wind. Gosposa Kargina continues her recovery from the car accident, I hope, Alexei said. Slowly. Do I thank you for the specialist consultation or Maya? It was a joint offering. I have someone else's kidney in me to remind me of your wife's last offering. Some years back, Mai had shot Cargan after he had put two forty-five caliber rounds in Alexei's ballistic vest. Alexei said nothing, and Cargan moved on. Now, what is problem involving old KGB? Cargan asked. A few days ago, Mai took an information drop at the reception in New York. When she left, she happened to get into the cab of a Serbian vet, where the picture of her and instructions to deliver her to some of Godetsov's goons in Barton Beach. The goons had more photos of Mai, some notes and a bio on her, and a picture of my granddaughter. Is uh, Natalia Petrovna all right? I have seen to it. They walked in silence for several strides. What is it you want of me? Cargan asked. Nothing. I'm telling you, I'm taking Godetsov. More silence. Cargan with his head down, lips pursed. He sighed. Alyosha, I cannot let you do that. Goretsov isn't SVR anymore, Dimya. He's a criminal. The ones who make the new Russia a joke in the world's eyes. Moreover, he's a criminal who had an interest not only in my wife, but my granddaughter. Come against me, come against my, we can handle that. But not my flesh and blood. I understand, Alyosha, but you have no authority here. If you take him, you are breaking law. Do you think that matters to me? Cargan's sigh this time was deep, heavy. Why do you tell me this when you know I cannot sanction it? To warn you to stay out of my way. Cargan shook his head and switched to English. Alyosha, Godatsov has me and other highly placed officials between rock and hard place. When he left SVR, he left with information. That is why we take hands-off approach to him. I suspected that. What's your point? If you take him, 
automatic disclosures go into effect. He has French lawyers whom he calls every 12 hours. If they do not get a call with their code phrase, they disclose the contents of a safe deposit box in a Swiss bank. Among the contents is list of all directorate moles who orchestrated Perestroika and Glesnost. Russia would never recover from such knowledge. The necessary resignations would decimate the government. You mean you would never recover? Cargan shrugged and said, I ask you, as a Russian, to consider that. I'm not Russian. I never was. I was Ukrainian. Now I'm American. Ukrainian only because your Russian father married a Ukrainian and raised you there. Nikolai Bukharin's bones lie in Stalingrad, where he fought and died for Mother Russia. Demya, the history lesson is unnecessary. I learned it at my mother's tit. What if Goritsov told you what you needed to know? Can you get your answers in that 12-hour period? I have no leverage over him. Kargan smiled, full and broad this time. Govetsov has a wife and three grown daughters, but he also has a young mistress, who recently gave birth to his only son. Kargan met Alexei's surprised eyes. Did you think this job cut off my balls? It does to most. Yeltsin was my political mentor, but the KGB taught me what I know best what you know best. We have Goritsov's mistress under constant surveillance as well as a wiretap on his phones. We'll take his piece and his bastard to the Lubyanka. Within minutes of his next call to his lawyers, we'll get him there. And you can use some old-fashioned KGB persuasion on him. You were the one who pointed out this can't be an official operation, Dimya. Of course not. New FSB is like your ATF. They have to have television cameras around to show country what cowboys they are. Are you up to it? Yes, but I'd rather he not know I'm involved so soon. My can bring him in. Yuri will assist her. Cargan sighed again. The young people get to have all the fun. All right, so not quite as exciting as that probably would have been portrayed in a movie, but pretty realistic as to how these things really happen. All right, before we take a little break, I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit more from A Face in the Crowd. You recall the chapter that I read last week was about a teacher in Americus, Georgia, who is meeting with his minder. And the teacher is a character who shows up much later than the point we are right now in A War of Deception. And he's been placed in America's Georgia and given a fake background and a fake name. And the directorate is surveilling him constantly because he agreed to that rather than be deported back to Russia after he was extensively debriefed, of course. 
And so he finds he has taken a, a like to his life as a teacher. He becomes very involved, as we indicated from that first reading with his students in teaching them history and in using rap music to make history connect to them. And I actually wrote this character and how he operates with his students before I ever heard of the musical Hamilton. But once I started to write this little mini sequel, I had heard of Hamilton, so I had to give a little homage to Hamilton in there, which is why his students have raised the money to go to New York City to see a production of Hamilton as a reward for all their hard work in school, in his class, and not dropping out of school. So I'm going to read the very next chapter in A Face in the Crowd, which is after the teacher Brendan Mears meets with Marcellus Block, his directorate minder. Two. Brendan Mears pulled into his driveway shut the lights and the engine off, and sat for a moment to collect his chaotic thoughts. Why the hell couldn't he have been told from the beginning where he could and couldn't go? If he'd known New York City was off-limits, he wouldn't have built this trip up in the kids' heads. And how the hell did he explain to his principal why he couldn't go? Not for the first time in fifteen years, he wanted to say, fuck this, I'm going home. All he'd have to do was drive to Houston, Texas, to the Russian consulate there, and turn himself in. 800 miles, around 12 hours, if he didn't stop, if he wasn't caught. Oh, yeah, he'd given it some thought more than once. And weeks later, his body would be dumped in an incinerator in the Lubyanka's basement, Russians held grudges for a long time. Mears let himself in through his house's back door and turned off the outside light. He leaned against the kitchen counter in the dark and pondered his life. It wasn't that he hadn't thought of Natalia Bukharin all this time. He had. Whenever he saw a woman with red hair or heard a bright, boisterous laugh, it wasn't that he didn't want to know what had happened in her life. He did. Was she married? Did she have children? What work did she do? Absent the actual answers, he made them up. She'd never married because she'd never gotten over him. She had no children. She worked at a sad and lonely job, missing him every day. Right. Since he'd arrived been dumped here in America's Georgia in the summer of 2001 with a new identity and a false past, he'd adjusted. The kids he taught made him forget he'd been a Russian spy. Now he was pushing closer to 50. No wife, no children, not that the SBR had conditioned him to want those things. He'd had relationships mostly with single teachers at the school where he taught. All of them had wanted more than he was willing to give, because on a whim, he could be forced into another new life in another nondescript location. Those women had moved on to other relationships, 
to husbands, to schools out of state. He remained because he had to, because there was no other choice. Well, there were other choices, none of them good. Mears turned on the kitchen light, took a beer from the refrigerator, and walked through his house, checking his telltales to see if anyone had been inside. That was one bit of spook paranoia he'd never given up. All clear, but at times he had suspected someone had searched his house, more than once. A book in his bookcase, maybe a sixteenth of an inch off where he'd placed it. A scent of sweat. A scuff from a shoe on the hardwood floor, which he may or may not have made himself. Mail which may or may not have been opened and resealed. If it had been, whoever had done it was good. Mears couldn't come to a firm conclusion about it, except for the fact his postal carrier shoved stuff in his box willy-nilly. There'd been occasions where his bills and junk mail were neatly stacked in the mailbox. The times when his computer ran slow for no reason? Someone had hacked it but he'd looked at no questionable websites. Hell, he didn't even click on news stories about terrorism or anything to do with Russia or the UN. His students thought him backward for subscribing to real newspapers. Mysterious clicks and static on his landline? The phone was tapped. When it took a few seconds too long for a call to go through on his iPhone, a listening post tapping into not only whom he'd called, but the conversation, too. Well, he hoped someone enjoyed hearing him make appointments for a haircut or to have the oil changed in his car or telling a telemarketer off. Satisfied no one had been inside his house, tonight at least, he shut off the lights and went to his bedroom. He stretched out fully clothed on his bed to finish his beer. He'd once wanted to taste vodka so badly, he'd gone to a package store and made it to the checkout with a bottle of Stoli. If he'd had enough cash on him, he'd have bought it, but the purchase would have shown up on credit card records. He'd put it back on the shelf. No one had told him he couldn't buy vodka, but he was well aware of the optics. Besides, his training had imbued him with the skills to fit in and not give himself away. In Boston, so long ago, he'd accustomed himself to the vile Sam Adams beer. He hadn't craved vodka in a long time, and the hash session IPA had gone down smoothly for years. Mears fell asleep, alone in his queen-size bed, his beer unfinished on the nightstand. Okay, we'll take a little break here and then maybe go back and read another chapter from A War of Deception. I wanted to point out that the podcast, this one, Real Spies, Real Lives, now has its own website and that URL is realspiesreallives.com. All those words mashed together, no spaces. And it's pretty simplistic right now. It's the previous episodes, and then I have to upload the
the most current episode after it shows up on my podcast distributor. And this is a place you can come to if you're not interested in subscribing to the podcast on one of the podcast platforms. You can come there and listen to the episodes. Of course, the podcast is free, except for the fact that some of the podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, you may have to subscribe. I mean, you may have to pay a subscription fee to Apple or to Spotify, but none of that comes to me. It goes to them. And I want to keep the podcast free for as long as possible right now. All it takes is my time to produce it. I did make an investment on this really cool microphone and microphone shield and a little sound barrier to go behind it as I go into my closet (laughs) every week to record to try and make the sound as nice as possible. So after that initial investment, it really doesn't cost me anything to sit here and talk to you. So the podcast is free. I have not monetized it. I don't even see the point in that because I would have no control over the commercials that would appear. And because I'm a control freak and I don't want a commercial that goes against my personal principles to show up. So you can find it on all the major podcast platforms, or you can go to that new website and listen to it there. Today, March 9th, is the 67th birthday of an Irishman by the name of Bobby Sands. Now, some people listening to this may not remember who he is. It probably was not covered in your history class when you were in high school or college. He was a member of Sinn Féin and probably the IRA in Northern Ireland who was arrested and put into the British prison called the Maze, specifically H-Block. That's where they put all their top IRA prisoners. The conditions were horrific at the time, and Bobby Sands was one of several prisoners there who wanted to be classified as prisoners of war, so they would receive treatment in accordance with the Geneva Protocols. Of course, the British didn't want that because they didn't consider what was happening in Northern Ireland a war. They considered it suppressing domestic terrorism, so they refused. Bobby Sands and several other people went on hunger strike, and Bobby Sands died in May 1981, I believe, I'm or 82. I mean, the day he died is impressed in my memory because I was driving back from Maryland one evening to where I lived in Northern Virginia, and it was dark. It was fairly late in the evening, and 
over the news on the radio was the report that he had died from his hunger strike. And I was so overwhelmed, I had to pull over off the, if you know the area around D.C., you know the Capitol Beltway, and pulling off to the side of the Capitol Beltway and then getting back on it is no easy task at certain times of the night. And this was not late enough for the traffic to have thinned out, and it wasn't early enough for the, there to be minimal traffic. So it was quite heavily trafficked. But I had to pull off upon hearing that news because it struck me so profoundly that a person would, would risk his life for these principles, that this designation as a prisoner of war in order to get better prison conditions for his captivity, to die for that was something I think my generation didn't quite grasp. And it moved me as well because he was Irish, and I'm of Irish descent. And when I was doing some planning for things that I was going to talk about, the type of marketing I was going to do for my books, I came across this, this date, March 9th, when I'm recording this. You won't hear it until March 11th, but I'm recording it on March 9th would have been his 67th birthday. Well, that's close enough to my age that I had to stop and think again about that day that I learned that Bobby Sands had died and how profoundly affecting that was. Now, whether you agree with him or not, he is still pretty much a hero in Northern Ireland to the Irish Catholics there. His pictures are painted on walls. He had a son who has a daughter. And there was a recording recently of her singing a song that's about him. And this is a man, of course, she never knew because her father was a small child, barely out of his infancy when his father died. And it was just an amazing thing to hear. A woman singing about a grandfather. And first of all, thinking of Bobby Sands, this young man, as a grandfather was challenging enough. But here she was singing about a man that she had never known, except in stories from her grandmother and from people who knew him and from murals painted on the walls of Derry in Northern Ireland. So I just wanted to mention that since, as you know, from a couple of weeks ago, I recently finished the rough draft of a novel about Northern Ireland. It takes place a few years before Bobby Sands' death. 
I believe he was already in prison when this particular novel takes place. But this novel takes place in Belfast, and he is associated, of course, with Derry, which is an hour or so away from Belfast. So that's what's been on my mind this week. And I think we'll leave it there and perhaps move on to reading a little bit more. Actually, I think I'll read a little bit more from A Face in the Crowd. This is a book that I didn't really market that much when it came out because it's a tiny little thing. It's a novelette. It's about a quarter of an inch thick. And I actually ended up when I would go to book events and I'd sell a copy of A War of Deception, I would give this away as a companion piece. So, okay. So let's just read the very next chapter after we've left Brendan Mears alone in his house, pondering the, oh, unfairness of his fate. Three, United Nations Intelligence Directorate, somewhere near Washington, D.C. Paula Shaw was in the middle of prioritizing my Fisher's meeting schedule for the next two days when her directorate's cell phone buzzed to tell her she had an incoming call on the directorate's secure version of FaceTime. She looked at the information displayed, confirmed. Agent Marcellus Block, 83064-1993-US, assigned special projects. She knew all the headquarters operatives on site and a few from other field offices, but she'd never heard of Marcellus Block. Special Projects was an organization within the United Nations Intelligence Directorate whose members kept an eye on turned assets, people the directorate had rescued from oppression, or people they'd extracted from rival organizations and given new identities using the U.S. Witness Protection Program. The U.S. Marshal Service oversaw the vast majority of those individuals. However, special projects often assigned directorate operatives to keep an eye on several individuals in the program. Paula touched the icon to answer the call. An African-American man with gray shot through his close-cropped hair looked back at her. Miss Shaw, he said. Yes, Agent Block, I'm Paula Shaw. How can I help you? First, pleased to meet you. I've heard a lot of good things. Paula wondered what that meant. But before she could ask, Block continued. Miss Shaw, I need to meet with my fisher but if I call her directly, she'll think something is seriously wrong. It's not. I see. You want me to ease the way? Block smiled. Exactly. I don't want to cold call her on this and create panic. Agent Block, Director Fisher, doesn't panic. Yeah, bad choice of words. Try this. If I cold call her on this, she'll be royally pissed off. Paula couldn't hide her smile. I have seen her that way, Agent Block, and 
It's to be avoided. Perhaps if you told me what this is about. Can you access special projects files while we're talking? Yes. Look up file AWOD 2001. Paula turned to her desktop computer and clicked on an icon. In the search box, she entered AWOD 2001 and wondered what AWOD stood for. She clicked the appropriate responses when the top secret warning box and the several Are You Sure boxes appeared. The file opened and she glanced at a number at the bottom of the screen, indicating the file size. Um, Agent Block, this is a large file. It'll take me a while to skim it, Paula said. No need. Uh, go to the table of contents and click on Reports, Brendan Mears. Okay, give me a moment. Brendan Mears, now a high school teacher in Georgia, had been an illegal SVR operative captured by the Directorate in 2001. Illegal meant he hadn't been part of the official employee list for the Russian embassy. He'd assumed an identity for a specific purpose, one which pissed Paula off as she read the summary. During his initial and subsequent interrogations, he had cooperated to the point where if the directorate had turned him over to the FBI for a spy exchange, the Russian government would have executed him, if not outright, than after a rigged trial. My Fisher had made him the offer of a new life, and he'd taken it. Smart man. Paula skimmed through the relocation agreement and through the reports of three observers over 15 years. Agent Block was the most recent and due to rotate out in a few months. All the reports were unremarkable. Mears had kept his nose clean. There were attachments from computer forensics and listening posts, but she skipped to the final line on each. No disallowed activity. Got the flick? Agent Block asked. I think so, Paula said. This mirrors. Is that who you want to talk to Mai about? Yes. What's the bastard done? She thought she heard a sigh from Block. He hasn't done anything. Your reaction is what I was afraid of getting. You saw where he is and what he's doing. Yes. He's a hell of a teacher. Some of the kids he's taught I've employed in my cover business so I can get a complete line on him. He's got a way with underprivileged kids, a, a way that keeps them in school and gets them into college. Sounds admirable. Yeah, so here's the deal. A group of his students have raised the money to go to New York to see Hamilton, and Mears wants to go with him. In fact, his principal insists he go. Wait a sec, Paula said, and scrolled back to the relocation agreement. Um, New York City is on the list of places he's prohibited from going because the subject of his old mission lives on the Upper West Side, which he doesn't know unless someone from his old company has passed that along to him. They haven't, and you're assuming the SVR knows that information. Nothing taken for granted here, Agent Block. Understandable, Miss Shaw. But Mears's record is spotless, 
We've allowed him to work on a Habitat for Humanity project in New Orleans in 2006. Jesus, he swung a hammer beside President Jimmy Carter. Why can't he take his kids, the vast majority of whom are African American and Hispanic, to see Hamilton? I don't make that decision. I'm aware. I'm also aware of the dozen or so people Special Projects watches. Mears is the only one whose reports go to the director. I'm sure you understand why. Of course, Miss Shaw, Block said, his tone edgy, impatient. That's why I want to meet with Ma and discuss this with her personally, but I don't want her to think Mears has done something wrong. I'll broach the subject with her, Agent Block, Paula said. If she agrees to meet with you, when are you available? Whenever she'll see me. Okay, let's stop there. I think that's a pretty good reading from both to kind of give you an idea of where both books are going. So, I think we're at the end. I've got this one down to about 45 minutes. It took a lot of editing to get last week's under an hour <laughs> because I talked too much. And I'm hoping to soon catch up on some more watching of the Netflix series Spycraft and give you some reports on those episodes. I will say I highly recommend it if you want to sit down and binge watch it. I think all 10 episodes are out. It really, really is an excellent production. And some of the some of the subject matter experts that they're using on that program, I have their books and use them for research and use them as well in my marketing for my my writing. All right. I had my second shot of the Pfizer vaccine last week. Everything went well. I felt fine until about midday on Thursday when all of a sudden I felt like I'd run a marathon and my back and shoulders were very achy and I kind of felt like you feel when you're getting the flu. So I went to bed, took a long nap, and the next day I felt fine. Other than now, the injection site area itches. So I'm assuming that that's my body telling me that it's making antibodies. I So tomorrow, the 10th, I'll be one week post-final vaccination shot, and I have to give it one more week to make sure antibodies are at their height before I can go out and do some of the things that I haven't been able to do for the last year. And that will be interesting because about the time that I get to do that would be exactly one year since I started lockdown, quarantining, social distancing, whatever you want to call it, in my house. And that's going to be a good thing because I am so tired of my cooking. And I'm actually a pretty decent cook, but I am so tired of it. I think it's mainly the cleaning up the sink and the kitchen afterwards that's deterring me because I'm one of those cooks where I don't reuse pans and I don't reuse utensils so 
I, I usually end up with a lot of detritus after, after cooking. So I'm going to ask you to do the same thing I'm still doing. Wash your hands, wear a mask, watch your social distancing. And remember, if you do have to go out, always keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio, copyright 2021, all rights reserved.